Children in kindergarten and first grade are welcome to Primary Church, and if you are remaining in the service, uh, will you please pray with me. Father, I pray that this morning as we consider uh, this part of the book of Revelation, as we consider your word, that you would give us a fantastic, a, a, a tremendous, a, a, an enormous vision of the gospel, that you would give us a, a vision that takes over everything that washes over us, that leads our hearts to sing, that leads us into mission. I pray that you would just make it big. I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind. I pray that you would open the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen and amen. You know, for the past... Um, since well, about since January, we've been searching for a student pastor here. We started. We're we're well into the search now, um, starting to get resumes and things. So basically, what I do during the week is I spend most of my time reading when I'm not talking to people, and I'm either reading things about Revelation, and when I have time, I'm trying to read things also about student ministry. And so I've been following a few blogs and articles and things like that, and I came up across one that interested me by a guy named Brian Cosby, and he says this about, he's talking about student ministry, but he says this about teenagers, he says, according to sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton, most American teenagers believe in something dubbed, he quotes, moralistic, therapeutic deism. Within this MTV religion, right when I grew up it was MTV religion, but this is MTV, God is a cosmic therapist and a divine butler ready to help out when needed. He exists, but really isn't part of our lives. We are supposed to be good people, but each person must find what's right for him or her. Good people will go to heaven, and we shouldn't be stifled by organized religion where somebody tells us what we should do or what we should believe. The only reason I think that shocked me more than it would have otherwise because I've actually been so deeply embedded in the book of Revelation. In other words, he says what most teenagers believe, and I would say most adults too, actually, is some version of this, what he calls moralistic theist, uh, moralistic therapeutic deism, which on one hand, if there is a God, you just, he expects you to be good. On the other hand, he also expects you to feel good. And, and finally, he's, it, all things being equal, he just does, he stays out of your life, and that's the way you like it. And the reason it struck me as so odd is because we've been looking at the book of Revelation since January and nothing could be further than the truth. Nothing could be further than the truth. The whole book of Revelation is about the person and work of Jesus and the fact that he, he died for you, he lived the life you should have lived, he died the death you should have died, and he rose again from the dead. Well, the reason... That, that he did all that work is because you would never be good enough. You'd never be moral enough. You'd never make the cut. So it had to happen. And as far as feeling good, I mean, the book of Revelation, I'll be honest with you, is not a particularly feel-good book. I mean, the first, when you look at just the letters to the churches, every one of them, at least for me, leaves me walking away feeling some kind of conviction. In other words, it doesn't leave me feeling particularly happy. And especially once we get into the rest of the book, I know I've told you like every time it's going to get a little weird coming up. Next week, that's actually going to be really true. Right? Next week is the four horsemen of the apocalypse, evil minions from heaven. We'll see how it turns out. But what you see in the book of Revelation is not moralism. 
It's not therapeutic and it's not deism, right? Deism said that God is uninvolved. And if anything we've seen in the book of Revelation so far is that Jesus walks among the churches. He knows what's going on in the churches because he's actually there and he's participating and he is living and active in our lives. And so as we continue and we continue to look in the book of Revelation, um, if you really think that at the end of the day what it's all about is just being good, or God not being involved, you're going to be pretty disappointed. In fact, you're probably going to be pretty shocked. On the other hand, as we, we've looked at chapters 4 and chapter 5, I hope you're having this growing vision of God. You see, the, a, a friend of mine I went to a seminary with, he is actually a church consultant now, he says where there is no vision, pettiness prevails. Where there is no vision, pettiness prevails. In other words, in a lot of churches where there's pettiness and where there's arguments and there's complaining, at the end of the day, a lot of it is because people don't have this incredible view of Jesus and they're not overwhelmed by it. They're not knocked down by it. And what you get in chapters 4 and 5 of the book of Revelation is just that. Remember chapter 4, we looked at there's one sitting on the throne and in chapter 5, another comes to meet him. It's a lion who appears to be as a lamb. Before we jump in, we looked last week at the first eight verses of chapter 5, where John looked and he saw the, someone with a scroll in their hand, and he says then uh, no one was worthy to open the scroll, and so he wept, and one of the elders said, Stop weeping, for the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. And he says, I looked and I saw a lamb as if it had been slain. And we realize there the core of the gospel is just this, that the way the lion conquers is by becoming a lamb. The way the, 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 the lion overcomes is by giving up everything. And what's the natural response to that? That's what we're going to look at today. But before we jump into that, as we've been looking at the book of Revelation, I've been remember, giving you some theological terms and things like that to help you understand it better. One of the things before we jump into the text I wanted to talk to you about was this whole idea of inspiration. When we talk about inspiration, right, yeah, I think it's uh, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So inspiration means that God has breathed out scripture, that the, the Bible comes ultimately from God. But the question is, is, is that humans wrote it, how does that work? And there are basically two different views of this. Um, one, not very many people hold, and the other, most people who are orthodox with a small O Christians hold. And that's the, there's a mechanical view of God's inspiration and an organic view of God's inspiration. What's interesting to me is that most people, most Christians, even if they believe one, when it comes to the book of Revelation, they believe the other. Here's what I mean. A mechanical view of God's inspiration means that it really doesn't matter who the person was that wrote the scripture because really what all God is doing is dictating to that person. And in fact, he might not even be dictating. It's almost as if, you know, the Apostle Paul or James or John, they can almost be sitting there watching television while God made their hand move. And, you know, you might gather around and see what's going to come out of that crazy hand next. That's a mechanical view that, that really, it doesn't matter. It could have been anybody. The organic view, on the other hand, is the view that most Orthodox Christians hold. And that view basically says that God used... The personality, the gifting, the, the training, the experiences, the fears, the hopes, the dreams, all of these things went into any particular thing that was written. 
So if you read the letters of the Apostle Paul, what do you see oftentimes? You see a lot of angst and agony that he has gone through, and that is God using Paul to produce an inherent word, uh, an inerrant word, but he's using it to use all of Paul's experience and all of who he is. Now, why do I bring this up at this point? Because when you get into the book of Revelation, remember how the whole thing started was Jesus called John and he says to him, come write down what you see. In other words, let's just start by saying, he didn't say, come and write down what you hear. He didn't say, John, come here and I'm going to just tell you everything you need to write down word for word. And so when people read it, they will know that they should take every word of the book of Revelation literally. Because it came literally from my mouth. What he says and said is, John, come and write everything that you see. And when you go into it, knowing that John is trying to write everything that he sees, think about the task that he has. He's trying to get his head around a lot of the things that he sees and he's writing them down. Now, is it the word that God wanted us to have? It is. But John's intention probably never was to describe things, every single thing in the book of Revelation, literally exactly as it is. Some things, yes. Other things, no. That's what we're trying to sort out. So as we go in, because it's going to come up today even, in today's text, this whole idea of, of John grappling with what he sees. So with all of that said, we jump in. The text There's really three things that you're going to see in today's part of chapter five. And you see three songs, really. You see a new song, verses nine and ten. You hear the angels song in verses 11 and 12 and creation's song in verses 13 and 14. So it's a new song, the angel song and creation's song. And let's look at the new song. It says in verse nine, as they sang a new song, saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Now the first question I would, I would ask, I did ask, is what does it mean for them to sing a new song? So they sang a new song. There's a, there's a bunch of different ways you could come at this. First of all, as you, you, if you look at the Greek language, there's two words for the, the, to use if you're going to say something is new. One is neos, that's N-E-O-S, if you're taking notes, if that's the transliteration. And the other is kainos, K-A-I-N-O-S. Neos, new, is never used in the book of Revelation. And neos, it has to do with, with progression of time. In other words, you take one thing and then you add another thing after that. That would be the new thing and the new thing after that and the new thing after that, the new thing. Well, the word that's used here is the word kainos, which means new in quality or, or new in substance. It's, it's a different thing. And that becomes important because so what does that mean? Why do they say, OK, they sang a new song here. Now, one way you could look at it and say they sang a new song because it's a new covenant. That in the old covenant, all we saw was, we saw the gospel, but we saw it in shadows and we saw it in figures. When you look at the Passover lamb, you realize that blood has to be shed for the forgiveness of sins and that a lamb will be slain. But not until the new covenant do you, do you realize that that blood will be shed by the lamb of God who actually is a man, Jesus himself. That's qualitatively different, right? One is a real lamb and one is a shadow and the other is reality. On the other hand, I think Occam's razor here is also come in, comes into play. Occam's razor is a principle that says the simplest answer is usually the, the correct one. And if you look at the Psalms, at least four times that I can remember in the Psalms, you're, you were commanded to sing a new song. So 
if they sang a new song in the Old Testament, is every song a new song? And is this song different than the new songs you heard in the Old Testament? And I think the answer is no, because in the Old Testament, the, the occasion on which they sang a new song was always on the occasion of some great deliverance by God. In other words, when God saves them in such a way that they could never save themselves, they, sing, they say, sing a new song, that this is a big deal. It's about salvation. And the reason that they're singing a new song here, the simplest solution, is just to say, because this is the greatest act of redemption there could ever be. It's the ultimate act of redemption. Every act of redemption that you see really just points to this big one. And so, of course, you would have to sing a new song. Because it's the greatest act of redemption. It's the greatest act of salvation. And it is wrought by this lamb who was as if he were slain. And the first thing you hear after that, the response to this new song is being sung by the 24 elders, which represents humanity. And they say something interesting. They say, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. Remember I told you the word worthy is not a, a necessarily a biblical word. It's a word John's borrowing from the Roman Empire, that when the, Ro- when the emperor would walk by, you would shout, worthy is the emperor, to receive power and glory and all these things. But what's interesting is in this particular passage, John tells us why the lamb was worthy. I mean, if you're a Christian and, and someone says Jesus is important and you say, well, I hope you would say yes. And you say, is he worthy of all praise and honor and glory and all these sort of Christian words? And you'd say, yeah, amen. Why is he worthy? He's worthy because he's worthy, I guess. You know, he's God. That's not what this says. This attaches specific meaning and teaches us why the Lamb of God was worthy, at least in this particular context. And let's look at that for a minute. The first thing that's listed is that Jesus was slain. Worthy is the Lamb, for you were slain. Because you were slain, you are worthy. And I just want to point out that when you say Jesus was slain, that's just a historical fact. In other words, there's very few people in the world, that scholars or anyone else, that would dispute the fact that there was a carpenter out of Nazareth named Jesus who was crucified by the Romans. Just a historical fact. Now, what makes it different than just a historical fact? Well, it's what they say next. He says, you were slain and you purchased a people for God. As soon as you attach meaning to that historical fact, it becomes a doctrinal fact. In other words, to say Jesus was, was crucified is just history. To say Jesus was crucified for me or Jesus was crucified for every tongue, tribe, and nation, that all makes it doctrine all of a sudden. And then they take it one step further because not only was he slain, not only did he purchase a people, but that he made them a kingdom of priests, which is basically an effectual fact, that he purchased the people in order to do something with them. And it was to make them a kingdom and priests unto our God and to reign on earth. So the reason they say that the Lamb is worthy is because of His work. You hear me say it over and over and over again, that He lived the life you should have lived, He died the death you should have died as your substitute, and He rose again. In this context, that's what the, the, four, the 24 others say, because of this fact, you are worthy. And it becomes even more interesting, I think, if you consider... He says, when it says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, and people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Well, the first thing that you can't, don't miss 
who, who he has ransomed here. It's people from every tribe, language, tongue. It's not every person in the world, but it's people from every different people group are now included. That up to this point in redemptive history, up till Jesus came, uh, redemption really was just isolated to the Jews, or at least that's what they thought. And with the, with the slaying of the Lamb, all of a sudden salvation is open to everybody. And that's important because he says, ultimately, he says, you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on earth. And that comes, that language comes straight from Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Let me read that to you. He says, now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Remember, this is when Moses, God was coming down to give them the Ten Commandments. And he says, here's what you speak to the people of Israel, that they are my treasured possession, and I'll make them a kingdom of priests. Their kingdom, because they will reign. The priests, because they will serve. And there's a couple things to point out. Did you notice back in the, the Revelation message where they will serve? It doesn't say someday they will serve in heaven. You know, go to heaven and you get your wings and you'll be there forever. It says they will reign on earth. There is coming a day. We'll see it by the time we get to the end of the book of Revelation, if you're still here. Where the ultimate end of all of this, the place that, that Jesus is taking everything, is new heavens and new earth. That someday we will reign with him on the earth, in a, in new, with new heavens and a new earth and everything redeemed. And that has actually started right now. In other words, if you've trusted Jesus, you've begun to reign with him now. And what that means is every area of life that you touch, ask yourself, am I reigning in this area? Am I subduing this area to, for, to, as part of my, my position in the kingdom of God? And people got a little nervous this morning when I said, so if you're a kid, think about your room. Is that under submission? If that room was your kingdom... Is that kingdom obeying you? Is that kingdom under control? Is that, is, or do you have dominion over that kingdom? Or not? I'll let your parents discuss that with you. On the other hand, if you're a parent, think about your job. Whether you're a doctor, maybe you're an engineer, maybe you're a teacher, maybe you're, you're a mom that, that teaches her kids at home. Any of these things... Do you look at that and you say, this is part of me reigning. This is part of all of creation one day is going to be under the dominion of humanity and I'm going to be a king and the way that I reign, uh-oh, is by serving. And when you look at your job, do you see that as one of the primary places that you reign with Christ, that you bring it under the dominion of Christ, that you also see it as your primary place of worship? I know we, I mean, we homeschooled our kids for the first nine years. A lot of times I came home, it didn't look like it was worshipful. And yet where everything is going is that every single thing that happens will be part of worship. And what you see here, among other things, you know, there's a lot of debate, especially when you get deeper, the deeper you get into Revelation, about which promises God has made to Israel specifically and which promises God has made to the church, or are, are they one and the same? Has the church replaced Israel and all these things? At least in this case, it would seem that the promise to Israel about being a kingdom and priest is realized in the church. That the promise that God made to Israel on Mount Sinai is realized 
in the church that this one now you may say the other things about other passages but this particular one it looks like the church is the one who ultimately will be this kingdom of priests that has been ransomed by the lamb to include by the way Jewish people who have trusted Jesus so it takes us where it takes us to the next passage the angels song look at verse 11 he says then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Remember what I told you before about John writing what he sees? And this is one of those times. If you try and take this passage literally, you'll end up feeling a little bit wacky. You see, I, the other day I was, I was, I don't know why, I was sitting on the couch and I had my laptop and I was bored and I thought, you know, I, I thought, you know, I'll watch some TED videos. You ever seen those sort of motivational things? And I went to the website, which I'd never gone before, and there are all these categories, and the very top category says jaw-dropping. I thought, well, if I'm going to watch anything, I might as well watch jaw-dropping. And the first one was about this guy, he calls himself a mathemagician. So I really wanted to see that because I've got all these disorders that keep me from being able to even remember my multiplication tables. And so what the guy did, he's wearing a he looked like a magician, but he did math. And he would say, okay, I wanted five people. He got five people standing up beside him with a calculator and he would ask people to shout out numbers and he would add them in his head before the people on the calculators could answer them. That's pretty impressive. I couldn't do that. And then he said, do you, you know what it is to square a number? You know, the number times itself? He said, let's try some two-digit numbers. And he said, give me a two-digit number. And someone give him a two-digit number. And almost as they were finishing saying the number, he would blast back at them the, the square of that number. Impressive. He said, let's try three digits. And he did that a bunch of times. And he said, let's do four digits. And he did that. He didn't take, it was a little slower. And then he said, now for my final trick, I'm going to square for you a five-digit number in my head but in order that you know what's going on I'm going to verbalize what I'm doing and as he multiplied this what would end up being like a 10 digit number it was jaw dropping it was jaw dropping to listen to the way he processed all these numbers and all this math and what's my point to telling you all that is that is the exact opposite thing of what John is doing here John is not sitting in heaven trying to be the math magician and count every single angel that he sees to say myriad upon myriad is John's way of saying there are more angels than you could shake a stick at. There are more angels. That's just the highest number that they knew in the ancient Near East was 10,000. So the best you could say is 10,000 times 10,000. So that mean there was literally a million angels there? Probably not. To say myriad upon myriad and thousands upon thousands was John's way of saying for as far as I could see, it was just angels. And the angels were singing. And what were they singing? They were singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Remember, I pointed out to you last week that when humans sing in the book of Revelation, they sing in, in the second person. They say, You are worthy. When the angels sing, when creation sings, they sing in third person. He is worthy. In other words, they, they, they don't have this relationship that we do, but they sing nonetheless. And the question I always ask is, why do they sing? Why do the angels sing? Because they really don't participate in this redemption. 
And it, as I thought about this, it reminded me of, of, of Harold Powell. Many of you guys have heard, the, heard at least one Harold Powell story if you've been here for a while. You know, when I was growing up, it, my family almost never went to church. In fact, I, we, we never went to church, and I was extremely poor. And there was a pastor of a very large church named Harold Powell. It was a charismatic church, of all things. I would end up a Presbyterian is odd. But he would bring groceries to our house. He would stop by to see if we were okay. I can remember him telling my mother about Jesus and her saying she didn't want to have anything to do with it. And he never stopped coming. Until I was about 15 years old. And the reason that he stopped coming when I was 15 years old is because he was lying on his deathbed with cancer. And his family called my family to his side. And so this poor family came to his side. Now, mind you, even if we had become Christians, even if we just said, yes, we believe, we didn't have any money to offer, no gifting, no one in my family had even been to college. Why did he do this? We went to his side, and he didn't even speak. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I don't know what he did. Maybe he prayed. But as we were leaving, his wife said something that I also will never forget. She looked at my mom and she said, I don't know what it is about your family. And my mom said, why? And she had a look on her face that was half smile and half puzzled. And she said, Harold's love for your family was, it, it seemed, it was almost unreasonable. So here's a woman who's married to this man, I assume for decades. She looks at this man's love for this family who could do nothing. And to her, it, it, it the only explanation is just it's unreasonable. She, she can't get her head around it. And when you look at the angels singing in the book of Revelation, you should be reminded also that the fact that, that Peter says the angels long to look into these things. They long to look into this whole idea of the gospel and redemption. They don't partake in it. But when the angels look and see what the Lamb has done for humans, what the Lamb has done for humans who have sinned against Him, who have mocked Him, who have run from Him, who have done everything bad, and yet He has still gone to the cross for them and risen from the dead, what else could an angel think but that it's unreasonable? And yet there's something that's attractive about that unreasonableness, isn't there? And so what do the angels do? They sing. What else can you do? They sing. They don't sing out of their own joy for themselves, but they sing out of joy for what the Lamb has done and who He is. What they sing is this sevenfold blessing where they sing power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing belong to the Lamb. And the first four things there are really, they're just singing about the, the qualities that the Lamb possesses, Jesus. And the second, the second set of three things is really just the response that He deserves. So in a sense, they're being very objective, the angels are. Here's who he is, and here's what he deserves. He's, he's all-powerful, he's all-wealthy, he's all-wise, he's all-mighty. And because of that, he deserves honor and glory and blessing. That would be enough, but we, the, the scene continues on, because you go from humanity singing, basically, to the angels singing, and then finally this third tier, you see all of creation sing. In verse 13... He says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And then the elders fell down and worshipped. 
Now, do we, do, do we know that John actually somehow was able to see every single creature? I don't know, because he doesn't even say that. He says, I heard. He says, I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. In other words, John's saying that every single living thing in the whole world, I heard singing this. Everyone. And what did they sing? To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. Notice they only sing the last three things. But here's the question that I'd be asking if I were you is why? Why does creation sing? You can understand humanity singing because they receive the blessing, right? You can understand the angels singing because in some sense that's their job description. But why does creation sing? And not just, uh, you know, the talking animals of Narnia, but all of creation sings. Everything under heaven and in the sea, everything that moves, lives and breathes, has anything, sings. Let me read to you Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It helps us to get a handle on this, I think. It says of Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself, get this, all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So what's the point there? That It's just this. It's, there's this principle that you see going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. That as man goes, so goes creation. In other words, when Adam and Eve were placed in the garden and God said, to the garden is yours, work it and keep it, or worship and obey, and Adam was made our representative, when Adam sinned, not only did we inherit Adam's guilt, but all of creation inherited his curse. I've told you one of the most moving passages of the Bible to me is when God comes down after the fall and begins to mete out discipline and he looks at Adam And it'd be one thing if he said, Adam, you really blew it. It'd be another thing if he said, Adam, you and all your descendants are going to bear the consequences of this. But do you remember the very first thing that God says to Adam? I just imagine him looking him in the eye and saying, Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. Like, Adam, you didn't just ruin it for yourself. You ruined it for every square inch of creation. Every square inch of creation is ruined because of your sin, because you have violated shalom. Things are no longer the way they are supposed to be. Now, the good news of the gospel is this. It's good news for humanity, but it's even it's good news for creation. Because as man goes, so goes creation. Jesus comes as the second Adam. And because of his obedience and because of his bearing the curse, the curse will be lifted even from creation. Remember Romans chapter 8 says, All creation groans for the the revealing of the sons of men. That There's a sense in which all of creation cannot wait until the final. Like all of creation right now is on pins and needles waiting for me to get to Revelation chapter 22. Because the good news is that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. And the last line 
First, two things I wanted to point out. Notice that who they sing to. It says, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The way this whole passage started in chapter 4 was John looked and he saw one who was sitting on the throne, God. And by the time the scene is over, all of creation, all of humanity, all the angels and all of creation are singing, not just to the one on the throne, but to the Lamb as well. That the Lamb and the one who sit on the throne are completely and utterly equal. In fact, ultimately, it will be the Lamb on the throne. And what's the response to that? The response in verse 14, it says, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now, since we're, we're Western, and because this is written in English, you probably you need to be reminded that whenever you hear Amen, in, in a Semitic passage, it, it's, it's, a, it's a word that demands a response. I think that's why John did it this way. In other words, if you were if you were in a synagogue, whenever the rabbi would say "Amen," if you thought that was true, you said what? "Amen" back. A lot of church traditions. If the pastor says "Amen," you say what? "Amen" back. And so this great, tremendous scene has happened. That the Lamb is slain. The Lamb is 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 now on the throne with God. All of the humanity is singing. Creation is singing. The angels are singing. And the elders say "Amen." The four living creatures say "Amen." And before you say "Amen" back. I want you to think really hard. In other words, it's sort of like Jamie prayed. It's easy to get caught up in in this atmosphere of praise. But the question you have to ask yourself, if you look at chapters 1 through and 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, those were pretty hard chapters. The letters to the seven churches, every single one of them brings, at least in my own heart and mind, some kind of conviction. And everything after this, is pretty hard. At the end, it, it, it starts to get better. But it becomes pretty hard. People are martyred. There's battles. And the beast comes out of the sea. And the saints are persecuted and everything. So before you say amen to this great vision, ask yourself, do I really believe that? Because tomorrow, for some of you, things are going to be pretty hard. Some of you, by the time you get home, it's going to be pretty hard. Whether it's because you're dealing with illness, you're dealing with a hard marriage, you're dealing with hard kids, something. And the question is, do you really believe that this vision is informative for the way you address all of those other things? I think it has to be. I think the reason we're petty is because we really don't see Jesus how he is. The reason we're angry, the reason we complain, the reason we despair is we really don't believe that the Lamb is on the throne. And not only has He won the battle, but He will win the battle and He is winning the battle. Do you believe that? And will you believe that? And if you do really believe that, then when you hear the elders and the the four creatures say, Amen, then your natural heart's response should be, Amen. And there will come a day when all of us who are trusted Jesus will be around the throne and you won't have to have, have some Yahoo like me telling you all this stuff. That the four living creatures will say amen and the natural response of your heart is amen. But now you need to think about it every day. And that's where I leave you. Think about that. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we continue in this book that you would just overwhelm us with a vision of your glory. That all things would pale in comparison. All things would just fall away as we are continually looking at Jesus and what he has done for us and this whole vision of him upon the throne and being Lord over every piece of creation and even Lord of our lives. In his name we pray, amen and amen.